Welcome to NARPM Radio, your source for property management practices and ideas to help your career, delivered to fit your busy schedule. NARPM Radio, get tuned in. In my coaching practice, I'll share with you, typically when I'm working with people, we're talking about different challenges that people may have in their business and or a lot of times there's people that are working in property management or they are in real estate then they're looking to start their own company. So I do a lot of coaching around how to start a company. And typically the sort of questions that I get around challenges that people are having, having been in property management myself, a lot of the questions revolve around as a broker owner, property manager, how do I work on building my company, managing my employees, when I am stuck in the throes of the day-to-day property management. And really what it comes down to is time management. I know we hear that all the time. And many of us have read all the different ways that we can manage our time. I'll share with you some of the things that have really worked for me over the years that I like to recommend to people to try. And it doesn't work for everyone, but I find it's a really great way to work. I know Stephen Covey, um, who's written all kinds of different books on One Minute Manager and things like that, has recommended similar tips and tricks. And one is called time blocking. If you haven't heard of time blocking, it's a way to organize your time where you're focusing on that one thing for a set amount of time. So that way you get more work done, you're not having all these interruptions. And in property management, so often, we are kind of shooting from the hip around all the things that are coming at us at one time and the phone calls and showings and owners and tenants and maintenance emergencies. It's really hard for people to to organize themselves. They're like, I just don't understand how I can get my calendar together to be able to work on those bigger, more important projects. So I'll share with you how I've always organized my calendar in property management. And it worked really well for me, and it might work well for you. On Mondays, I had nothing on my calendar. (laughs) Especially if Monday turned out to be a, a federal holiday or something, then it was Tuesday that had nothing on my calendar. Because we all know we walk in the office, we're gonna have a ton of emails or maintenance emergencies, or HR issues, somebody calls in sick on Monday. So we're kind of dealing with things, we're getting our week organized. So typically my Mondays are open. My Fridays are also open. I don't book any appointments on Friday. I looked at Friday as my drop dead date for getting my work done, my highest priority activities done prior, you know, if I didn't get it done on Monday and it went to Tuesday and got bumped to Wednesday, Friday was my drop dead date. It was not gonna then roll over to the next week. So no appointments on Friday. Then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is where I would set up um, spaces on my calendar to do work. So I wouldn't necessarily get real specific. I would just say in the morning for the first two hours, I would block out that time and I would just put in office. Okay, And I might then add to it later that I'm working on my newsletter, things like that. And so that was my time in the office. Any appointments that I had with prospective owners or tenants or out in the field was, for me, always in the afternoon. And I like to try to also leave a block of time, maybe a half hour or an hour, that's just considered open. And that's meant for those unexpected things that happen or an owner that drops in or a tenant or a maintenance vendor. The point is you don't want to have so many things on your calendar that if one thing goes longer than you thought or something comes up, now your whole day's blown apart, right? So you're going to want to make sure to kind of create some of those open spaces. Now, my people that struggle with the idea of managing their calendar in that way because they feel like it's really restrictive is I'll say, well, if that's not working for you, the other thing to do is when you come into the office first thing in the morning, before you open your emails, before you check your voicemails, you should know 
what is the one thing that you absolutely want to get done that day, your highest priority thing, and do that within the first 30 minutes or first hour of being in the office. Then open up your emails and do those other things because as we all know, as soon as we open up that email, now we're down the rabbit hole and we're reacting to every little thing that comes into our emails. I just had a conversation with a coaching client around this the other day, and they were really struggling with trying to block out their time throughout the day. So we're experimenting with just let's do the most important thing in the morning, and then if the rest of your day gets blown apart, at least you go home feeling really good that you got that one thing done. All too often, we just get frustrated, and that's why we don't feel as business owners why we're making progress, is we're just always reacting to things. The other thing that both new people to property management as well as really seasoned people, I would say is a must to have in place, is you need to have checklists or some form of systems or policies or procedures and I'm saying, don't get really complicated about this. I'm a big proponent of keep it simple, simple, simple. The reason being is the people who often like to follow policies and procedures and checklists and the ones who typically write them are people that sometimes have checklists for checklists. <laughs> and then they wonder why their staff doesn't follow the process. <laughs> so keep it simple to me. Things should be, like on your website, you should not have to click more than twice for people to get to where they need to go and get the information, correct? You should have a FAQ page, Frequently Asked Questions, on your website. You should have, if your voicemail allows it, sometimes people are able to talk about what they do in their business. Put that out there. Try to put out the things that you're repeating again and again and again in other avenues so that you're not spending so much time doing that live and in person. The other thing that I found really worked for me, and some people, there's a million ways to be successful in property management. So I want to put that out there to all of you. There's no one way that's going to make you more successful than anybody else. It's a matter of knowing how you work and what works well for you, and then finding a system that's going to work well for you. And then you just keep doing it. So people that are very process-oriented are probably going to have lots of procedures and checklists. People that aren't as process-oriented, at a bare minimum, you should have checklists for the basics of how you run your office. And the reason why this is so important is because as we get interrupted, it takes us 20 minutes to refocus our attention. Now, if we're getting interrupted throughout the day, think about all that lost productivity and time. And no wonder why we're frazzled by the end of the day. So if you have a checklist for how you onboard an owner or a move-in, move-out process or your security deposit or how you're processing an application or whatever it is, property management is a beautiful business in that everything we do is repetitive. We do the same thing month in, month out, day in, day out. So there's no reason why we can't kind of franchise our own business, so to speak, by having processes and checklists in place. The beauty of it is, as you're going down your checklist, if you get interrupted, fine, you deal with it, you come back to it, you look at your checklist and go, oh yeah, that's where I left off. And now you jump right back in again, versus what was I doing? And now you're, you're kind of discombobulated for the next 15, 20 minutes. The other thing that I always did, and I had to mandate this in my office because I got a lot of pushback from my staff, and so we made a deal. Let's try this for a week and see how it goes. And this is what I instituted, and it worked brilliantly once people kind of understood why I wanted us to try it out. So I put all of our emails, I had everybody put their email, a autoresponder stating that they check emails two times a day and they respond to emails within 24 hours or the next business day. And then we would set reminders to check our emails two times a day and then respond. 
So what happens is you're able to then focus your time on doing nothing but responding to emails, and then you don't look at your emails again for the rest of the day. Same thing with our voicemails and our messages. We put autoresponders on all of our voicemails, except for our rental inquiries. But on all of our voicemails stating that we checked our voicemails, and we said 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock, and we returned all phone calls either by the end of the day or the following morning. Typically, my entire staff would return the calls at the end of the day. We closed our office a half hour to the public before going home, so we had that last half hour to check any emails, voicemails, respond to them, get ready for the next day. Now, as I said, my staff pushed back on this. Um, they're like, no, I have to answer the phone when it, it comes in. I'm like, no, you don't. We tried it for a week. And when I went back around asking all the staff, how did it go? Everybody was ecstatic because they weren't constantly picking up the phone or being interrupted by the front desk person that was transferring over messages. Now they're seeing the light on with all these messages and they're feeling compelled that they have to you know, be responding to all these voicemails. They found that when they would check the voicemails two times a day, the majority of the voicemails were things that they could kind of group. And then they would make all their return phone calls, usually within about 15, 20 minutes, and they were done. Versus one call, and then it's a half hour. Another call that's 15 minutes. And now they're, you know, their day's kind of discombobulated. So we continued with that. I never lost any business by it. My staff was more productive. They were able to be focused on the work that they were doing. Another tip that worked really well, and I admit I was the biggest abuser of this, my office was completely at the other end of our building. And whenever I would get a brilliant idea, I would jump up out of my chair and go running to whoever it was and say, hey, let's, I just thought of this. Let's work on this. Let's do this. Hey, whatever. Well, that's really rude when you think about it because now I'm interrupting my staff. They were in the middle of something for me to share whatever popped into my head in that moment. So we decided to not do that to each other anymore. And I, as a broker, was getting frustrated that when I would come into the office, I'd have this huge long stream of people coming in and out of my office asking, Kathleen, we have this situation, we have this going on. When I wasn't in the office, they handled it just fine. But when I came in the office, all of a sudden, like nobody can make a decision without running it by me first and I wasn't getting any of my work done, so to speak. So we made a deal that when anybody was working on something that was important or timeline driven, such as putting together a lease or rental agreement or working on you know, maintenance and work orders or reviewing owner statements or having a conversation with prospective owners, whatever it was that needed some focus on uninterrupted time, we would send an email, and again, our office was rather small, I had six employees, but we'd send an email to everyone saying, hey, for the next hour, I'm working on leases, or hey, for the next hour, I'm working on work orders, or whatever it is. And then we all knew not to interrupt that person while they were working on their project. And again, my staff loved it because it was a way for us to be respectful of each other's time and what we were doing. And in most instances, if we'd set aside an hour to do something because we weren't interrupted, usually we were able to get it done in half the amount of time. So then you get this really nice endorphin boost of, yeah, I got one more thing checked off my list. And you just feel really productive at the end of the day. You're not as frazzled. So those are some of the things that I did in my office. Those are some of the things that I help my clients with when we're trying to get a grasp around how do I work on things within the company. I just had a conversation with someone the other day saying, you know, in, in working to get more owners, I keep hearing from, you know, marketing people, lead generation people that if I get an inquiry, I have to call the person back like ASAP, otherwise I'm going to lose that business. I've heard that a lot over the years too. My philosophy around that is you have to be authentic to who you are in your business. And granted, you also have to understand kind of where that information is coming from. It's coming from lead generation companies. 
coming from marketing companies. I personally, you know, because this person was expressing how when they're out and about in the field, if their phone is ringing, you know, they're not able to necessarily pull over and, and have a really good conversation with that owner. They're having to ask the person to text me or call me and, you know, I'll get back to you or blah, blah, blah. And they just find it discombobulating that they're always responding to all these random calls that are coming in and they don't really know who's on the other end of the call. So for me, how I always handled it was if somebody, prospective owner called in, typically I didn't jump right away if I was in my project. Again, I'm checking my messages two times a day. But at the end of the day or within an hour or so, I would call that person back and I would let them know, acknowledge I got their inquiry. And is there a time that I could schedule to speak with them, usually the next day, where we could have a 30 to 45 minute conversation about their property, what their needs are, you know, where they're at. And I never had an issue with that because people, if anything, are really appreciative that you were setting aside time to listen to them, focus time. So you're not talking to them while you're driving. You're not trying to multitask. You're really listening to them. You're asking really good questions to see if you're going to be the right match for them as a property manager. They're able to ask you questions and kind of vet out, you know, are you who you say you are? Because you may have blogs on your website. You know, you may even do a podcast. You may have other things going on. So by the time they actually reach out to you, they may have already made their decision. They're just, they want to kind of almost like touch and feel you and, and make sure that everything's okay. I know when people would call me, they then recognize my voice and say, are, are you the one that's done on the blogs, the videos? Because in my business, I had done videos for like six, seven years. I have a gazillion videos out there. And I would kind of jokingly say, yep, that's my ugly mug. <laughs> that's me. And just the fact that they knew, oh, wow, okay, this, she's real. You know, this wasn't like an actor doing this. This wasn't a marketing person doing this. This was the broker owner, you know, doing the videos. So I think if you were being true to who you are, my business continued to grow. I was able to be very selective about who I wanted to work with and what kind of clients I had. And I think people really felt heard that I was setting time aside specifically to speak with them. So please send in your questions. Um, Kathleen, we do have some questions yes. for you. This is an interesting one. One of our uh, attendees wants to give their property managers an end of the year bonus and wants to know whether you have any suggestions on criteria they could use. Yeah, so that's great. So hopefully, you are doing quarterly meetings with your staff and they have their annual goals set so that when you have, I did mine every month, so I would have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with my staff and we would be going over what was on their goals for the coming year. And my staff knew that if they met those goals, then yes, they would get a bonus at year end. Now, throughout the year, I would recognize employees when they did things or went above and beyond to kind of keep the momentum going. And then as you're coaching them and meeting with them monthly or at a bare minimum quarterly, you're able to encourage them, give them ideas, help them grow into their positions, help support them as they're working through their milestones. I always gave bonuses. I did that um, when I came out of the corporate world, but I also did it because in the early days, I didn't really know until the end of the year what my profit margin was really going to be. After a couple of years, you know, um, property management is pretty consistent. If you're looking at your forecast for the whole year and you compare, you know, this year to last year, you're going to see a very similar ebb and flow to your numbers. And um, But in the beginning, I didn't know. So I didn't want to give people big pay raises and then have to take something back if we had a year that was slower or something like that. What are I'm some types of goals, Kathleen, that you could suggest that um, your property managers have? Okay, so, well, and let me just say real quick. So for me, typically my bonuses were about 5% of what their annual pay was. Okay, that's what I tried to aim for. Okay, 
and they would get a cash bonus in December when I would do my performance review with them at the end of the year. But that performance review should not just be a one and done sort of thing. Nothing should be a surprise to your employee, okay? But some of the things over the years that we would work on is I would always ask them to pick one or two areas that they wanted to work on within the company. And we had overall company goals that we would work on. And everybody was tasked with a piece of that. And they knew that that was their project to run or their task to run. And it didn't mean that they had to get it all. They had to be the person to complete it. But maybe they then got other people to help them with pieces of it and they manage the process, right? So you're trying to kind of develop them in their positions so that they feel empowered that they get to make independent decisions, they're getting to grow in their career. So some of the things would be, for example, at one employee we were working on her getting her broker's license. And I was looking to promote her into becoming my business development manager. And so I wanted her to be able to have her broker's license so that she could kind of grow into that position. Um, the intent was eventually she would be the broker of record for my office that would allow me to kind of step back out of the day-to-day -day business. So we had a goal for her to get her broker's license. And then that, and I reimbursed after they're all done with everything. So don't pay for things up front and then they don't complete it. So if they're motivated, they're going to complete it, and then you reimburse them once they've completed everything and we had a big party and so forth. That's one thing. I also worked on, we have a lot of processes in our office, but as new technology comes on board, your policy and procedure manual is going to get, it should be a living document. So you're going to update it on a regular basis, okay? And so I would task maybe my office manager. Part of that person's goals would be, updating our policy and procedure manual. Somebody else, it might be, we also spent time for each individual position within the company that they should have kind of like their own binder on their desk that was the processes for their position. So that if that person ever got promoted up or decided to move on with their career and left our company, we could hire anybody and they would have that binder there that would basically tell them how to do everything, where to find this form, how to fill it out. So it was, you know, a procedure manual for that position. So I had each person working on creating their own and then monthly we would review it and they would have to pass that procedure to somebody in a different department and the person in the different department would run through that procedure to make sure it worked, that there weren't any holes or a step that got overlooked. Those are some things. Another thing for my maintenance guy, one of his goals was we wanted to get his productivity up out in the field and less time in the office. So he had certain percentages of time out in the field that he had to work towards completing. We, my maintenance coordinator, for her, it, you know, might be a matter of learning some new software, doing X number of move outs getting the turnovers down to five days from when the tenant moves out to the, when the new one moves in. Take a look at what they're doing in their position, and then you can break it up. But make sure you can't just give them, I want you to do this, because you're not going to get buy-in from your employee, and they're going to think, oh, my God, now I've just got more work piled on to what I'm already doing. You want to kind of negotiate with them, find out, you know, what their goals are, are, what they would like to continue to work on in the coming year, and then how does that tie into the overall company goals, right? So they might have a goal that's for their position specifically, and then they might also have another goal that ties into a piece of the overall company's goal, right? Um, if you're a business development manager, it's going to be a certain number of new clients that you're bringing on board. Okay, so that's, you know, those are, it kind of gets back to look, you know, just breaking down in smaller numbers. If we're going to move forward, how do we do that? And then who's going to be responsible for pieces of it? Yes, Kathleen, one of the, the questions has to do with what you were just talking about, has to do with uh, setting up a pay structure and any recommendations you have for that. And perhaps you set it up based on 
the goals that are set, or maybe you have some other recommendations in that regard. Okay, so companies tend to be structured in a couple different ways, portfolio and or departmental, and sometimes there's a bit of a hybrid. Usually the portfolio model in most cases is a commission sort of position where that property manager who's licensed manages 50 doors, 60 doors, 100 doors, and their pay is the commission, you know, percentage of what they get from, you know, everything that's coming in. That's one way of doing it. I will share with you that I found for me, people that are attracted to the field of property management versus doing sales aren't necessarily driven by commission. People that are very successful in property management tend to be people that like working in an office, that like the consistency of um, knowing what they're doing. They have their routine. They also are gravitate toward just like people, you know, brokers or, or people that own a property management company. They gravitate to it because you have the consistent cash flow every month and you're not always having to work so hard to build your pipeline to get the next sale. Okay, so I found all my people were employees. I did not have anyone that was on commission solely. So then that leads to how do you figure out how to pay people? Okay, my office is located right next door to Silicon Valley where people are making Uber bucks because companies dangle out there the stock options and all of that. And people from where I live are willing to drive over the hill an hour to get to work every day because they're making the big bucks. People that chose to stay in Santa Cruz, California, we're on the coast, little beach community, are staying here because of a lifestyle. So positions don't necessarily have to be all about money, but they have to be at a level where it's covering people's you know, basic needs, their rents and, and, and things like that. So you can do a survey there's lots of surveys that you can do online for different positions, what the average pay is, so forth. I will share with you, in the beginning, there was no way that I could, you know, compete with Silicon Valley. So again, I also knew, having come out of Silicon Valley, that once people meet their, their basic living expenses, oftentimes it's not about the money, the reason that people work for you. So. In my office, because Santa Cruz is a lifestyle community with surfing and very outdoorsy and all of that, and family, people being well-rounded, not working crazy hours, which is what I did in Silicon Valley, I made a very conscientious decision that my staff was not going to be working crazy hours. We work normal business hours. I compensated my employees through paid time off. And so even though their hourly pay or their salary, it was fair, but it wasn't on the high end. The benefit was we took every single federal holiday off. We were closed for weekends. My office was closed the week of Thanksgiving. My office was closed from Christmas Eve through New Year's Day. And my employees got two weeks PTO time, which is personal time off. When you added up all that time, and they were paid for that time off, when you add up all that time, it was six weeks paid time off. Now, some of you are probably gasping, going, oh, my God, <laughs> I could never do that. Well, I'm, maybe not in your market, but, you know, I would challenge you that I did it in my market, and I started out initially with just the federal holidays. Okay, not a big deal. Then I extended it to the week of Thanksgiving. None of my owners complained. They knew that we're on call for maintenance emergencies. My owners actually sent me emails saying, Kathleen, it's about time you and your staff take some time off to be with your family. We know you've got us covered. I was so blown away by that. I was not expecting voicemails and emails from my clients. So what that showed me was that they knew how hard we worked for them. They knew the value that we brought to the table. And they knew that we were still taking care of their property, even if we weren't physically in the office that day. So those are some of the things. The other things that you can look at is, you know, flex time. One of my employees started caregiving for her mom. 
and she was finding it really stressful getting her mom was living with her for a while getting to our office on time and then having to go through the commute to get home and then deal with her mom and then her husband would get home from work and it was just really stressful for her after a long day so we agreed to have her come into the office early so she'd beat the traffic she'd come into the office she had a couple hours of quiet time in the office to get her work done do what she needed to do and then she'd leave i think it was around three o'clock in the afternoon and she'd get home and then she had time to kind of deal with her mom take care of personal stuff at home be able to do what she was going to do before her husband then got off work and came home and so her productivity went through the roof because now she wasn't all distracted and she wasn't getting worn out so look for things that are important to your staff and part of my review process and when i would ask my employees bonuses don't always have to be financial so one of the things i'd always ask my employees when we'd set up their goals is when you reach this goal how do you want to be rewarded and one of my employees an older employee where you know the money maybe wasn't quite as important to her as somebody in their 20s per se how she always wanted to be rewarded she says kathleen i really love it when our office does volunteer work in the community great so when she reached one of her goals then she would pick what volunteer group we were going to go work with and she would kind of organize it and we'd close our office for half a day or whatever and we would go do the volunteer work in the community you know somebody else might have a different way my younger people were more social and many times they'd say, well, I want us to all go out and do something together after work. Okay, so when they hit their goal, we would go do that. My maintenance guy, he liked having kind of an extra comp time. He was semi-retired, so we would group when he'd work out on projects out in the field. If it was a slower week, instead of spreading it out, you know, Monday through Friday, we would group it Monday through Thursday, and he would get a Friday off so that he and his wife could go have a three-day weekend in their little RV. You want to personalize it, makes people feel really appreciated, really part of the company as a family, if that's what you're trying to create. I understand it's not as easy as you get bigger, but I still believe you can do a lot of that even within departments of larger companies. So those are some of the things that I use to reward my employees, to make things fun, to give them something to work towards. And it's not always necessarily monetary bonuses that keep people in the company. Knowing that they're supported by you if they've got to deal with family emergencies, great, okay? That, that can be huge for them. The fact that people don't have to commute an hour and a half each way to work, they get to commute 15 minutes from their house. That was a big selling point when I was interviewing employees. I provided lots of education. So especially for my younger people looking to develop careers, that was really important to them. You could set up something as a way of if people have a college degree or they're going to school, a big thing that we know about is the student loan crisis. So maybe instead of giving them a, a financial bonus per se, maybe part of it is you give them money or you help them pay down their school loan. That's a bonus okay to them but that'll really resonate with someone who has that issue my maintenance guy he liked going to the chiropractor three days a week he was in his mid-70s that kept him going his insurance didn't necessarily cover it so that was how i would kind of bonus him i would reimburse him for his chiropractic visits so find ways to meet the needs of your employees and that will keep them you know staying with you longer Think about your employees like you do tenants. How do you keep tenants in your properties without having turnover all the time? Maybe you have some little reward things that you do for them, okay? It's gonna be the same way with your employees. So get creative about things that you can come up with um, to bonus them, but it doesn't necessarily always have to be about the pay. I will say that when I advertise for positions, I do put the pay range out there. Because one of the things that used to irritate me to no end when I worked in Silicon Valley, you'd go interview for a company, you get through three or four interviews, you get down to the end, you're really excited. I told them up front what my expectations are for pay. And then they come back and would offer me half. And I'm like, well, 
you know, we just wasted everybody's time. That's not going to work for me. So I've always been very upfront about putting with the pay rate for any positions going to be, of course, based upon experience. So that if somebody knows that's just not going to work for me, they're not even going to apply. And now you're not wasting people's time. Right. So that's that's something that um, I've always done. Other questions? Um, yeah, Kathleen, let's talk about QuickBooks. Uh, one of our our attendees asks whether you use desktop or cloud and do you have any tips on sharing use of the data and balancing property management bookkeeping with business bookkeeping? Although I have a master's in business and I understand accounting, I did not personally do the accounting. I had people that did it for me and I had lots of checks and balances so that not all the accounting power was, was with one person. So with the QuickBooks, I did not, my, my people did not like the cloud. So it was, you know, on the computer. And even my, I sold my property management company the end of 2017. I have my two businesses now and I have a bookkeeper that comes in, you know, monthly and, and does all my bookkeeping. She still, she does not like the cloud either. So it's on the computer, right? So I don't know what I've heard from my different bookkeeping people is they just don't like the cloud. They find that it's cumbersome. It's not as easy. I think they they still like having it, you know, on the computer. And that's the way they've done it. When I coach people around the accounting side of things, I always say you're going to have QuickBooks for your business. You're, you personally, as the broker owner of a property management company, you're going to have your operating account. And that's what your QuickBooks is. That, you know, takes care of paying rent on your place. If you've got payroll for employees, you're leasing a, a copy machine or whatever it is, that's going to come out of your operating account. Your property management accounting is going to be with some sort of software for property management, whether it's Napoleo, a Buildium, a Propertyware. There's a whole bunch of different ones out there. And you're going to be using that software to keep track of rents coming in, expenses going out, security deposits. And of course, you're going to have your trust fund that through a bank, your trust account where all the money is going to be going in and out of that account. And then when you pay yourself your commissions out of that account, you're going to write to your operating account, your property management company, the check for your commissions or, you know, pay ACH that way. So, I had checks and balances. Back in the day, there were no such thing as virtual accountants. So I had a part-time bookkeeper that worked in my office. She worked for two other property management companies as well. We all kind of shared her. And she'd come in and, and I allowed her to work different hours. So sometimes she would come in in the evenings or late afternoons. Um, she would do my QuickBooks accounting for me as well as my property management accounting. Then I had another person who was very familiar with my property management software. She would come in once a month and she would do all my reconciliations for me. And then I would review and I would sign off as the broker. So my bookkeeper was not writing the checks, was not doing all that sort of stuff. If we did our owner deposits, I had to log in when she was ready to do the ACHs and I had to approve the funds. Same thing with checks. She'd have the checks and then I would sign them and they would go out. So we kept that. Any sort of bank statements that come in, you do not want to have that go directly to your bookkeeper. It should always come to you in an unopened envelope from your bank and you are the one opening it. Okay. I've heard of all kinds of horror stories of unethical bookkeepers that have literally recreated the bank statements and then they give it to the broker and the broker's not looking at the original bank statement. They're looking at a manufactured one. And so make sure you just have your checks and balances in place. With my QuickBooks, because we had payroll, my CPA did the payroll for us and my CPA would come in and do the reconciliation on my QuickBooks once a month. So again, I had the checks and balances. That worked out for me because then my CPA had all of our financials all the time. So when it came time to do our taxes, it was super easy. I wasn't then having to supply them with all sorts of stuff because, you know, they were the company that I used to do my taxes. 
but I did sign off every single month on my daily balances. That's something that good accounting practices, your bookkeeper should put it, should be putting on a calendar what the daily balances are for your account for if you have a in your, your trust account. And so they would give that to me along with the reconciliations, along with my bank statements, everything checked together. And I would go through and I'd review it all. I'd look at all the numbers, make sure everything balanced out, and then I would sign off on it. And I personally kept it in a binder in my office. So now we have the advent of virtual accounting companies, and there's quite a few out there. And they're great because if you have a small office, they're very affordable. And many of them have become or have staff on hand. They've become portfolio experts or building experts or whatever. Okay. And they're able to do it quite efficiently for you. You still put parameters in place where, you know, you're going to print the checks and sign them and send them out, or you're going to be approving the ACHs. They don't have free run to do whatever they want to do. You, as the broker, are still reviewing all of that. That's part of your responsibility. But that's how I structured the accounting in my office. All right, thank you. A question from one of our attendees. She wants to take herself out of the day-to-day -day management. She wants some tips on finding a replacement. The one and only employee that this person has is not the right fit. So she struggles with hiring somebody and training them or, or hiring somebody with a higher level of property management experience. Can you help with that? Yes, so based upon that question, the only way you're going to be able to eventually kind of back yourself out of the day-to-day -day is that you have policies and procedures, and if it's been you and one person, the biggest thing that I hear from people is it's all in my head. I don't really have things written down. Okay, as you're training your employee, they should be taking notes. You can mandate them to start typing up your processes for how you want to have things done, and then you review it. So you don't necessarily have to be the one to do it. It's a great training tool to do it that way. If they are not the right person, and I so hear what you're saying, I bought a company back in 2005, and it was a 20-year-old company, and the manager wanted to retire. And I had a full-time assistant and a very, very, very part-time bookkeeper that I shared with the other property managers. We were under the umbrella of a real estate company. And I had a leasing agent that was part-time. And so it was when the economy was kind of tanking back in 2006, 2007, 2008. Ultimately, when I went off on my own, I had to let some of the employees go. And I ended up hiring somebody to help me. And she was fabulous in that she had a work ethic like you wouldn't believe, extremely loyal. but she really didn't have the skill set. And so over the next six years, I kept moving her from position to position to position to position, trying to find the right seat on the bus. You know, everybody talks about, you know, if that person has, you know, good skills and stuff, they just may be in the wrong position. So I kept moving things around. Eventually, I realized that if I really wanted to take my company to the next level, and I really wanted to be able to step back out of the day-to-day, this person wasn't the person to do that. And I had no more positions for this person. And so ultimately, I made a really, really, the most difficult decision I ever made in the 13 years of running this company, because this person was a close friend as well. But I had to put on my hat as business owner, and I had to let her go. And I ended up promoting an employee within the company who had a ton of experience in operations, had been an executive assistant to a dean, three deans actually at um, UC Santa Cruz here. And so I knew she was completely capable, but you know, I had her doing kind of low level admin work. And so once I had removed this other person from the company, I was able to promote her into a position of, she was now running the office. And then I started pushing down more and more of my duties to her. So then she started managing the employees. And then she started overseeing payroll. And then eventually she started, um, she became, we're departmental, but she became the 
client care manager. So once the tenant moved into the property, they no longer dealt with the leasing agent. They dealt with her if something came up. Same thing as once we onboarded the owner, I kind of handed the owner over to her. And if there were any questions or an owner needed to work directly with somebody, they worked with her. So pretty soon she became me. But it probably took me about two years to kind of fully make that happen. And then I provided like support to her. So she ended up with kind of having an admin assistant to help support her with stuff as I was pushing more things down to her. So if the person that you have in your employee can be moved into another position and they excel at it, great. Otherwise, your best bet is going to be hiring maybe a very experienced property manager or a very, very experienced office manager okay somebody that's used to juggling lots of different you know aspects of running an office um understands accounting and payroll and you know just the whole how to run an office the operations right and you can always train them on the property management side of things but the reality too is you know you could look at a property manager that's like a broker associate and bring them on board and then you push everything to them and they become the broker of record for your office and now you're able to step back. So that's kind of the process of, of how to go through replacing yourself. Yes, you're going to have to hire somebody that um, either has more experience or somebody that has the skill set. They could come in at, like as an entry level you know, administrative assistant, and you're looking for someone that has, you know, all the capabilities of what you're looking for. And then over the next three years, you train them up to be that person to take over, you know, as you're slowly giving them more and more responsibility. It can be done, but I, I know people struggle with that. We have a question from a, a member today asking, it's mostly about uh, owner, and manager relationships and, and um, how they make decisions. Uh, the question is, if a resident is in a one-year lease and there is a leak which was fixed and resolved in the first three months, but the ceiling now needs to be repaired and painted and the owner doesn't want to fix that, how do they resolve that disagreement or that issue? Okay, yeah, so how I would approach that is that's kind of a cosmetic thing. So a couple different ways that you can approach it. If you've got a really great tenant and the tenant is just complaining, when's this gonna get fixed? It's hideous to look at. There's this big, huge watermark you know, on the ceiling. Well, a couple things. It's not gonna cost that much money to probably paint over the watermark, okay? Um, if it's been fixed, like you said, you know, that's probably all that really needs to be done. The next level might be maybe putting in some new drywall and, you know, you patch it and then you paint it. So a couple different things that could happen. You could talk with the owner and they may not have the money at hand. So how I've dealt with owners in the past, even on really large projects where I know we need to replace windows or put a new roof on or replace the appliances, is I get estimates and then I ask the owner, let's hold back a little bit of money each month from the funds that come to you so we can build up that reserve and get the job done. So you might be able to approach the owner, find out how much it's gonna cost to repair that final step and then say, hey, you know, if can break it out over six months or something and say, hey, can we hold back a little bit each month so we kind of build up this reserve and then we go get it taken care of. The other thing you could do is if on all of my properties I had reserves. My reserves were, you know, not hundreds and hundreds or thousands of dollars, but were a fair amount. And so could you use the money that you have in reserve to just paint it or fix it? If neither one can really be done, you just go to the tenant and you let the tenant know that it has been repaired. It's purely a cosmetic thing. And you just let them know that, you know, the owner's not going to be fixing it at this time. Try to get some sort of concession from the owner of, you know, let's set aside the money. If they agree to that, then you know you're going to be able to get it repaired in a couple months. 
the other thing that I've done in the past sometimes is I would, if I'm assuming this is just a painting thing, so I, I don't have more details than that. I would go to my painter and I would ask him, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you go out there and paint that? And would you be willing to take two payments or three payments? And then I would just withhold a little bit of money each month. And I would pay the painter out of, you know, as an owner expense for maintenance thing. You know, for me, that's a small thing. But if the owner is saying to you, I live off of every single penny that I get from the rent and I cannot afford this, then typically my response to that owner is going to be, you can't afford me then. Because when I'm screening owners, one of the questions that I ask is, how reliant are you on the income from this rental property? And what I'm hoping to hear is I'm not reliant on it. It's part of my overall retirement plan or whatever, but I'm not reliant on it. If somebody says to me, oh my God, that's what I'm living off of, then I tell them I'm not the property manager for you. I am more than happy if you want to hire me to do a one-time placement. I get you an amazing tenant and then you can take it from there. But I really don't think that you can afford me because you'll be paying my monthly management fee. Plus, what happens when a maintenance issue comes up? You're not going to have the bandwidth to take care of that. So I have let people go in the past that just, you know, that have said to me, I need every single penny off of that. They just can't afford me. And I close them out and I hand it back to the owner and I notify the tenant that I'm not managing it. So kind of a long answer to a question. I didn't have a lot of the information, you know, I would probably ask you some more questions around that, but see if you could get the owner to, you know, over a couple months, hold back, you know, a little bit of money to see if you can get that fixed. Thank you, Kathleen. We have run out of time and we want to thank Kathleen for doing this webinar for us. If you need to reach out to Kathleen Richards for additional coaching, her phone number is 800-475-3084 or you can visit thepropertymanagementcoach.com to find out about her coaching programs and her pricing. Of course, NARPA members receive discounts on Kathleen's services, so this is a, a benefit of your membership. So we want to thank you, Kathleen, for being with us today, and we look forward to seeing all of you at the Broker Owner Conference in Hawaii. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and thanks, everyone, for your questions. Really great questions. Thank you. Have a, have a great week, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to NARPM Radio. For more details on today's subject, refer to the show notes or visit narpum.org slash radio. And we'll see you next time on NARPM Radio.